in old school games where life is cheap. Bring a pole or rope. Don't go down in a heap. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Down in a Heap podcast. I'm your host, Rob, podcasting to you. Well, maybe not live. I guess it's Tuesday, so not live. <laughs> Whatever the hell that means. From my porch in beautiful northeast Minneapolis. I'm hoping for some rain here this morning. It's like most or much of the world, we're in a bit of a drought. And um, could sure use the rain. The wind's picking up here. And it's starting to get a little overcast and dark, so I'm tempted to go out and try and use a, a call lightning spell or something, but uh, instead I'm going to do the uh, at least a portion of the podcast here. Today I'm cheating, trying to get ahead of the game, so to speak, and maintain my schedule. Now that schedule, Wednesdays, I'm going to try and do a longer format show Sometimes it will be something like a review or just a topic that's come to mind. But other times, like today, it's going to be something that's mainly inspired by a call or calls that I've gotten. And um, Jason from Nerds RPG Variety Cast, who was at the top of the show there uh, channeling his inner cookie monster doing my theme song, called in in response to my talk a little bit about uh, the bard character class and how I feel that that and other character classes uh, in some, I guess now it's most versions of D&D are are present, but, but perhaps require a little bit more uh, of a select type of player to play them well. And uh, so Jason has some comments about that. So let's uh, just get right to it. Take it away, Jason. I hear what you're saying about bards and about, you know, if you're not ready to be quick-witted or recite a, a, a verse of poetry or a song or something that you should stay away from the class. But that kind of kills the escapism part of it, right? If you have somebody that's, you know, it takes a while to come back with a rebuttal or isn't talented musically or, you know, maybe not super quick-witted, whatever, then, but, you know, they, they really enjoy those characters in fiction, then to say, no, you can't play that kind of character in my game because, you, you know, you're not fast enough on the retort, it's kind of, crappy thing. I'm not saying you explicitly said that, but that's kind of implicit in what you said, right? I, I mean, if you ban bards in your game, then I guess it's not an issue. So, but yeah, I don't know. It's kind of a, one of those conundrums, right? Right, and that's my what, what has become my solution to what this issue I have with the bard is I just don't use them in my games. Because I don't really want to be a complete jerk and say, well, Johnny, you can be a bard, but Molly and Danny and (laughs) 
Luke, you guys can't be bards because you just don't cut it uh, as players. You're your backup material. You're not the front man. You know, I don't want to say those things to people. And I, and you're right. That would be kind of a crappy thing to do. Um, even though I, I do feel that's true because I like any game there or sport that people play, these activities that people partake in, there are varying skill levels and, um, and D&D is no different, really, than any, any other game in that regard. Some people are much better at pulling off different things than others. And uh, I, I guess I'm going to go deeper here as Jason kind of expands on the topic, recalling some previous episodes I've done... Uh, I look back in my catalog to refresh my memory, and yeah, I, I did one in November of 2020 called Hi, I'm Rob, and I'm a Crap Player, and then one a, f- a few weeks later in December of 2020 where it was called something like Player versus PC, where, Where's Your Emphasis? But it, uh, it also kind of ties in a little bit with the discussion that's been going on on some podcasts lately and has been talked about to death on various blogs and and uh, podcasts and YouTube channels and whatever and even um, I think the latest John Peterson book The Elusive Shift kind of tries to tackle this whole topic of uh, a war game evolving into this idea of a role-playing game but the the idea of immersion and Jason talked about it, or referred to like escapism and stuff too and I talked about how I feel like there's several types of escapism there's trying to escape you as a person and step into a different persona um, and there's also just escaping your world and your circumstances and uh, and you know escaping your the routine of everyday life that is what most people experience <laughs> they want and that's that's the escapism I'm much much more interested in I'd like to pretend that I have the opportunity to have this life of adventure uh, where I take chances and where there's the possibility of like immense reward balanced out by total failure. And it's that's a more interesting type of escapism to me than pretending I'm an elf or um, pretending what, what would uh, evil Rob be like or. Uh, um, even more altruistic Rob or something, I don't know, whatever, religious zealot Rob, thief Rob, um, or trying to escape Rob altogether and just playing something completely unlike what I, what I am or as close to that as it can get because I don't think anyone can really... <laughs> well, I don't know, maybe some people can. It, it seems almost impossible to me to completely escape your, your own self. 
But my question regarding all this with escapism is what if, what about the player that is completely, like, to use the example of the bard, kind of botching it? Their, Their retorts are like George Costanza, where he doesn't have a retort right away, but he thinks up this great one and tries to do it. (laughs) <laughs> a day later or something, you know, and that's an extreme example, of course, but but someone that is ill-suited to be playing uh, the raconteur, and, um, but they're trying ham-fistedly to do it, or it's some mountain of a man with a beard who's trying to play some elf maiden. I mean, that... <laughs> It's pretty hard to, when you're playing around the table, um, it's hard for me to take that seriously. I always, I'm, like I've talked about before, I'm pretty literal-minded. So, I might be able to buy into the, the, the big bearded guy being a dwarf or something, but uh, not some petite elf of a different gender. Uh, that's, to me, that's just kind of a little ridiculous. Even if that person wants to try and explore that, that's cool, whatever. I'm not trying to, um, cast shade on that. Just that, that's how I feel. And so if some people are doing these things in the game, it might be great for them, but my point is it might be really bad for the rest of the group. It might be pulling everyone else out of the fiction, out of the story, out of the game. So, yeah, it's it's a group activity. It's complicated, right? And this whole idea of whether or not you're playing the game or playing the game, which, where's, where's your emphasis, emphasis there? But uh, let's expand on that with Jason's next call. I guess that takes us back to the whole debate. You know, should you have different mental characteristics, then should your player character have different mental characteristics than the player? Right? You could have intelligence, and that could be book learning for your character. But, you know, should you try to play somebody that's smarter or dumber than you? Or should you always kind of be your level of intelligence, right? And, and, you know, it's maybe an ongoing debate in some circles. It's definitely easier if you don't have an IQ stat for your character. Um, So I don't know. It's an interesting question that I don't think there's a solid answer to. Uh, Although, like I say, the easy button is your character is your IQ, period. And that way it eliminates all that. If you're just playing as your avatar, kind of like what you do, then it's a non-issue. I'm definitely of the mindset that the mental characteristics that your character has just gives you in-game mechanical modifiers or serves as uh, some kind of game mechanism to set your character at a specific place. Uh, within the game and their capabilities in game terms. I do not 
feel like people should be trying to play up to or down to exceptional or very poor stats. Now, that's just my opinion, obviously, right? There's whatever works at your table, that's cool. Or what you want to try and explore, that's cool. But I think that's a, a real challenge for anyone to try and play someone that's way beyond their, their own natural capabilities. So for me to play some kind of exceptionally intelligent character when I'm not exceptionally intelligent, or the same with a charismatic character, I don't think that works. And it, even in my experience, people that find themselves with like a character with a 16 charisma or something, and then they adopt this persona that's entirely uncharismatic. <laughs> they, they act like some kind of vain jerk rather than someone that's likable. Um, it's, it's weird what what uh, I think some people just think of like the the worst like popular person in high school and why they might have been popular in high school is how they think maybe their character's popular because they're the, you know the homecoming king or the head cheerleader or something based on their looks rather than their personality or or their their social standing rather than their actual magnetism and, and persuasiveness and whatever. So I, I do think that's really weird. Um, and likewise, the playing the really uh, foolish person or the or the very uncharismatic person, it can be fun for a little bit at the table, you know, oh, I'm the bumbling fool who always gets us into trouble, or I'm the, the, uh, antisocial jerk character, but, but then it gets old really quick for me, uh, because some people really lean into it and, and just act like a jerk, and it's almost like their excuse, oh, my character has really low charisma, so I'm just gonna act like a jerk, and, um, and like berate people and <laughs> whatever, or I'm my character has a five intelligence. This has happened in my in games I've played with, so I'm gonna like completely give away our plans to our uh, to our enemies, or I'm gonna just like walk into the ambush purposefully. I know it's there, but I'm just gonna walk into it, and that's fun for some people, and it's definitely not fun for others. So you gotta, you know, I guess you need to figure out where you are on this continuum because, uh, yeah, the whole idea of playing the game or playing the game is a continuum. It's not some black and white uh, plus minus binary thing. Everyone falls along some kind of continuum there where you're either, where, if you're emphasizing, like, play acting and stepping into a different role where you're basically, like, improving or, or creating a character, directing the scenes and writing the dialogue for this character in a, in a movie or a play or something 
to the other end of the extreme where you're essentially just like playing a war game and this is your your pawn with these stats um i fall far more on the latter the game is the important thing and to me it's it's much more important about the actual players you're playing with and just getting together and having a good time with your friends <laughs> than adopt having all your friends adopt these different personas and having this kind of play acting kind of session that revolves that involves a game um to me the game the actual like exploration um and mystery solving and tactical encounters um with your own like avatar that's the for me that's the emphasis and if those people use an occasional funny voice when they're talking in character or have some kind of different mannerism or play a different kind of attitude eh, that can be fun and it can be kind of icing on the cake but i i much more think that the roles that you step into are more the role that your character represents in the game and that's more defined in uh, games like early D&D games where it's a much more defined archetype structure. I'm the fighter, I'm the warrior, I'm the best warrior in the group. I'm the cleric, I'm the person that can turn undead and heal and use defensive magic. I'm the magic user, so I'm terrible in combat, but I have these powerful spells that can uh, defeat foes, gather information whatever i'm the thief so i can i have these skills for infiltrating uh dealing with traps and locked doors and uh overcoming physical barriers by climbing over them and stuff so everyone has kind of a role that they have in the party much more than i'm the um orphan who has daddy issues and uh um <laughs> and is afraid of spiders or something i don't know whatever uh that's more important to me than than um yeah so that's where my emphasis is it's escapism as in escaping the uh everyday humdrum life and it's playing a game uh where the role-playing trappings are secondary and the game is what we're all there to do. We're there to play the game. <laughs> and again, some people, uh, it's, it's not an either-or situation. You can certainly do what, what people have come to think of as role-playing and still play the game, right? It's not like you are doing one or the other. But the stats, to me, are just there to tell you how many languages you know um if you get a adjustment versus saving throws um, you know versus magic or mind affecting uh, spells um what your the 
the loyalty of your henchmen are and stuff and your reaction adjustment uh, to NPCs, your like initial reaction adjustment. Those are what those mental stats represent. Intelligence doesn't mean that you're, you have to act like a complete moron. It just means that you're, you, your character doesn't have like a very high education. Maybe they can't read or write or something, or they don't know any other languages or even the capability to learn other languages. Um, but it doesn't mean you have to com completely um, just act the complete fool. Ideally, I think you can handle these role-playing, these stats more by the type of information and the amount of information that the referee gives that, those players. If they have a really high intelligence, maybe the, the referee gives them more in-game lower knowledge. If they have a really high charisma, maybe you're feeding them more uh, social cues and whatnot um, in a interaction with NPCs. You're giving them more details uh, about what's going on or what might be a social faux pas or something like that because they're they have a high charisma and they're just more socially adept and pick up on these uh, on these these cues that that people give off and some people pick up on and some people don't. And in game rather than having the players act the fool or act the the socially awkward person or something and that behavior leads to a result instead play it backwards and when you get a poor result you can explain it by saying oh my clumsy character uh scrape their shield up against the wall or something give away our position or my unwise character must have been whistling or um, talked really loud to give away our position or something I don't know does that work better I'm all for the DM setting up their setting the way they want and set and again I don't have an issue with DM coming up their own house rules either but i think there, there's something to be said about presenting them to the group and saying you know this is kind of the setting and if you have surprises you don't explain that to the, you don't mention that to the players but you know look i want to run this campaign and here's the basic idea and these are the house rules i want to use and if there's a strong reaction from the group we don't want to do that or we don't like that rule then i, I think that's worthy conversation because um, it's one thing for Taylor, if, say, Taylor's always playing online, he has this big pool of people to play with, but Rob, who plays with the same group, then, you know, if he alienates his group, Rob doesn't have anybody to play with. So you have different dynamics there. Right. One of the things that makes this hobby really interesting is that there is uh, this wide swath of approaches you can take to the to the various games and stuff and even you can play the same game the same scenario with the same set of like pre-generated characters and the outcome and even what happens in game is going to vary from one group to another just by their play style and their preferences and 
because it is driven by people and personalities and preferences and we all have these differences so that's uh, yeah it's it's a group activity and uh, if you want to just be in charge of everything I guess you need to play solo or, <laughs> or something uh, so yeah I, I totally hear where you're coming from and agree with the fact that uh, if you're going to alter the rules with house rules or you're going to have like various setting trappings that the the players should know about I think it's incumbent upon the referee to write these things up and present them to the to the players well in advance of the game so that the players have a chance to absorb this material and uh, think about the house rules proposed and stuff and weigh in on it if they have reservations or disagreements with that and and then you have to kind of come to some kind of accord you have a conversation <laughs> and I think that's a, a very healthy thing to do and like I said uh, on another the last podcast or whatever the random thoughts Saturday the DM presenting the the players with some kind of little elevator pitch setting document I think is really important to help them ground their character their character concept just kind of like the idea of what the campaign might be about uh, so you're all you all kind of start on the same page and you can hammer all this stuff out in some kind of session zero and I suppose if the the referee had notes written down some kind of outline for a discussion you could cover everything but i find that things tend to ramble all over the place and something gets forgotten uh, or no one really wants to take part in the conversation they're just sitting there like let's play <laughs> so it works better with my group to present all this stuff in advance in, in a written format rather than having this in-person conversation. Um, but it, I, I could certainly try again. But yeah, you need, you need buy-in. You need people to like say, yeah, this sounds like a game that we can all have fun with. Let's go. So uh, now let's go to the Pink Phantom. Hey Rob, Pink Phantom here. I was just listening to your episode about the two most common house rules in BX. And I find it interesting that those are the rules that are really designed to help the character be more, A, more survivable in the case of hit points, and B, uh, more st stronger towards what the player wants the character to be. And I wonder if just those kind of adjustments in, you know, back from the original formulas back in that time are kind of what helped move the hobby from being it's a war game with some role playing in it to it's a role playing game where you're not playing multiple characters, you're playing a single character and you're more invested in that character. Hey, thanks for the calls, Pink Phantom. I appreciate it. And uh, I've heard you calling in other shows and stuff and I always have some interesting takes and thoughtful 
contributions to the show, and no different here. I don't think you what you bring up is entirely true. I think the uh, the trend that I see in general role playing game play is what you outline. The the individual characters have become more and more important to the game and to the players themselves, and the game. <clears throat> The, the game trappings seem to be de-emphasized as, as I've gone through this hobby. Um, and yeah, I think as the characters themselves become more personally powerful, become more capable in different areas of the game, so the archetype structure has kind of become uh, more scattered, where... It's not just the ranger that can track. Anyone can take tracking, for instance. Or it's not just the magic user that can cast spells. You have, you know, the bard can cast spells now, too. And maybe even, like, the fighter that takes the Eldritch Knight path can eventually get a fireball, too, and all this. So it's not, you're not as reliant upon having other characters. And even the whole aspect of running multiple characters and having henchmen and uh, other NPC followers and retainers and stuff is all seems to be de-emphasized in the game. So the game definitely has changed and the pendulum has swung much more towards the idea of play acting and role playing and getting into character and stuff. And, and that's all fine. Uh, as long as that's what everyone really wants at the table. Uh, I do think some things get kind of lost in that style of play, though. Um, not really sure what it is. Let me think about that for a second. Well, for starters, maybe most importantly, is you often have divided motivations within the player group. When you have these characters that have their own personas and ideals and bonds and whatever else they <laughs> have come up with to describe various characters and stuff. Uh, you don't always have a group of players pulling the rope in the same direction. You get these tangents and sometimes conflicts within the group about what's important or what needs to be done first. And when it's a more simple kind of structure of like, we're out to defeat the Lord of Darkness, or we're out to loot as many tombs as we can to get really rich to and, for, and start our own organizations and baronies and stuff. I think that structure works better than um, each character having their having separate motivations. It, that can be interesting storylines and stuff, and different create different dynamics within the group, but. At its heart, I think these games work best when they are more, they're more simple, not only from a mechanical standpoint, but from a, a adventure structure standpoint. I think the more complex you make them, it's, it's tempting to do these things because in movies and television shows and, and novels, complications and, uh, so, <laughs> all these different character motivations and betrayals and whatever are really great 
to read, but at the game table, they don't always work so well. When when the NBC betrays the party, now, for who knows how long, that group of players isn't going to trust any NPC. They're going to look at all of them as, like, as traitors or untrustworthy. So, and if... Uh, and if there's a t- they encounter a 10-foot pit trap, the first thing in the dungeon, they turtle up and every look at every corridor as, as a potential trap, and it bogs the game down. So there's, there's all these different things that can, can modify gameplay in both good and bad ways, and back to the group dynamic thing, it all kind of varies based on <laughs> each group of participants. But in general, I think what you're outlining is true, that the pendulum has swung towards uh, play-acting and role-playing characters and, and role-playing like stats and species and all these different ideas rather than focusing on like an adventure game or an espionage game or a... Uh, Western or whatever you're playing, you know, the, whatever the, that game kind of entails. Um, instead, it's become more of a, a character study. And for some people, that's really enjoyable. For others, they just wanted to play the, uh, the game. And, yeah, I think a lot of the, the game mechanical choices that have been made are, are uh, helping to guide that trend in that direction i also wanted to say that uh when you were talking about the bard singing while the thief is trying to to disarm a trap that made me think back to uh monty python and the holy grail when uh the minstrel is singing about how sir robin ran away and sir robin's trying to get him just be quiet I got a big chuckle out of that. Yeah. (laughs) Brave, brave Sir Robin. (laughs) Uh, It it does seem like the the part, I don't know. Maybe someone can point me to some uh, a story or a novel or something like that that has a really cool portrayal of a bard. That's not that's not fiction specifically written like for D&D or Pathfinder or something like that. I'm interested in a fairly not modern novel. I don't want, I'm not looking to, I'm, I'm sure there's folklore and uh, mythology and stuff that uh, where the roots for the, for the bard class came out of. But I'm talking about just like fiction. Is there some kind of old pulp? Is there... I don't know. What where did this idea from the bard come from? And um I just don't see where they're cool. Sorry. <laughs> but tell me where they are. But not. Don't point me to a D&D novel. Don't point me to a Pathfinder novel. Show me something pre-D&D. That was cool. Was it Oh, what was that? I think there's something in Appendix N where there's a, (laughs) I want to say handsome Harley race, but it's not, (laughs) it's Wade, 
Manly Wade Wilson or something like that. There's someone that had a character in kind of like a, an Americana, not really a fantasy world, if I'm if I'm remembering uh, kind of a summary of that. Well, anyway, let me know where I can read a cool bard story that might change my mind. But still, most of the players that, that run bards, they're miscast. <laughs> it would be like having a, a movie about Winston Churchill, and everything about it is cool. The, the, uh, the script, the costuming, the direction, the story, the camera work, all that is, is great. But then you totally botch the casting for Winston Churchill. Uh, you have, uh, I don't know, Jean-Claude Van Damme playing Winston Churchill, and it just, just doesn't work. And, and just one more message, as you say, the Columbo-wing it here. Uh, going back to your previous episode when you were kind of waded into the, the discussions going around the Anchorverse about DMs rolling dice versus players rolling dice, I, I think it's interesting that the assumption seems to be that if the player rolls dice, there's no drama because, you know, the player may know the ability of their character, but that doesn't mean they know every circumstance that's going to be affecting that role. I mean, uh, an old school thief may know their percentage for finding traps, but that doesn't mean it's not an exceptional trap of some point, some sort, which means he would have to actually roll much higher. So that would actually emulate if the player rolls and, you know, they hit that key point that would emulate the, the character thinking they had found that there was no trap or had disarmed the trap when in fact they were wrong. Oh, I don't, I don't think players rolling necessarily means there's no drama because there's still the idea of the, the dice are clattering across the table. What's it going to be? Are they going to succeed? Are they going to fail? Is it going to be something really close? So maybe there's some kind of complication. Are they going to completely botch it? Um, so, yeah, I think there's still drama in that. I do, I wonder though, it seems like the people that have a real wish to roll their own dice, that they don't want the referee rolling for them, I do think from a lot of those people, it's a trust issue. So if they did roll, say, to open a lock and they succeeded, but then the DN said, oh, oh, it's a really complex lock, so you still don't succeed because you were minus 15% on the roll. Um, I, think that, <laughs> I think that would feed into their, the DM's out to get me attitude. So unless you really foreshadowed that by saying this is a really complex lock before they even make the roll, um, and maybe even told them, you know, what their... Uh, how their chances would be modified up or down. Oh, it's a really simple lock, so add 10% to your your chance to open it, or it's a really complex lock, subtract 15% from your chance to open it. If you do that beforehand, no problem. But, uh, yeah, in, in general, I just think the game works better from a narrative point of view on these things that... That player or the the character might not know the outcome, whether they were, excuse me, successful or not. I think it works better to just have the DM roll it. 
And uh, I don't have any issue with that as a player. I think that works fine. And we'll hear at the tail end of this episode, Rich Frazier chiming in too about about this topic. So, uh, but Jason is back with some comments about the house rules I uh, had in two episodes ago where I talked about what I think are probably the most common house rules in BX, maximum hit points at first level and different methods for determining attributes or arranging attributes to taste. So take away Jason. And as far as house rules that favor the DM, you know, you're looking at things that, that nerf bits of player characters, right? Bits of the classes, whether certain spells are banned or you make it harder to to study or, you know, the, like the house rule. Of, well, it's not really a house rule, but depending how big you make a spell book and how hard it is to carry that spell book around, you know, you, you know, things like that can really make it difficult on a, on a player, especially a spellcaster. If it's not really a house rule, but if you start enforcing all the material components and making them go out, you know, collecting mistletoe by moonlight, having the all the components and do quests for components and buy components. You're you're kind of being a little onerous on the players potentially, depending on your campaign. By the way, as far as most common house rules, if we're talking about BX or basic D and D or even advanced D and D for that matter, but really more with the idea that basic D and Ds. Beck me and, and and those. I, I bet you, in addition probably to hit points, maybe more so than stats, is unlimited levels for the non-human characters. Yeah, I see what you're saying there, Jason, about house rules that could potentially favor the DM, but some of those will help the, the players too. Like, for instance... I nerfed the sleep spell in BX, or I'm going to. I have at times, and I'm going to again in this campaign, because I I do think it's a little bit too much like the like pressing the I win button for the first level magic user. And that can go against the players, too. If there's an NPC magic user that has sleep, they can take out the whole frickin' party if they just win initiative. So, um, some cases, nerfing something... Uh, might be viewed as hurting the players, but it can also be helping them. But I, I totally see what you're saying. And oh yeah, that uh, <laughs> harvesting mistletoe in in AD and D rules is written. Talk about nerfing a class. Uh, I mean, if you don't have like greater mistletoe, all your spell durations and uh, range and all that are affected. And if you have to go down to lowly, what is it, holly or something? I think opponents even start getting bonuses on their saving throws against spells that use that as a, a component for. So, yeah, that <laughs> that's just another example, I think, where AD&D 1st Edition <clears throat> is, uh, just has too many fiddly bits. Uh, it can be, it can be I, I suppose it could be an involved, interesting game uh, for those that are, if you have a, a group of people that are really well versed in it, who have been playing it for years and years and years, rules is written and and all this is just second nature to them. It could be a could be a really fun game, but I think for most people it's just like, oh, what? Um, material components, though, I think can be kind of 
uninteresting uh, aspect of the game. And uh, that maybe warrants a whole episode on its own. Uh, Your last point there about level limits for non-human characters, yeah, that's a, a really common house rule too. I think more prevalent in AD&D 1st and 2nd edition where people just waived the level of restrictions. In BX where it's a little bit more baked in uh, I'm, I'm sure people do it. Uh, it. It's never been an issue because we never get to high level. So uh, I don't know. It, especially like 8th level being the, the lowest for, for a halfling you're talking a couple of years down the road of gameplay. Uh, so I don't really see it as a big problem, but I know some people really hate it. Um, and yeah, if you do, yeah, just wave it, whatever. <laughs> and now, uh, the next calls, I think from Jason and Joe are in reaction to the random thoughts Saturday episode. So we'll take it away guys. Hey Rob, Jason here. Always enjoy hearing as you gear up for campaigns and how they're going. Up North sounds really cool. Great name for a campaign. Uh, although, are they going to be the Emperor of the North? That's my, my question. Anyhow, one thing I do want to weigh in on a little bit, the idea of forbidden lore, you know, being kind of kept only to PCs of high charismas or certain level PCs. I definitely see the intent behind that because obviously there are certain rumors the average Joe's not going to hear about that are really important and you'd have to get in certain circles to hear those certain rumors. Um, I don't know if I'd limit it to a, a charisma score or something like that though, but I would definitely make certain rumors only available from certain NPCs maybe. And so you'd have to interact with the right people to hear those rumors. Yeah, I hear what you're saying there. I even toyed with the idea of having separate rumor tables and separate lore tables for each class or each you know, like type of class. So clerics, magic users, thieves would all have their own uh, a separate table they'd roll on, but that just <laughs> that's just too much work. But keep in mind, this is all just starting rumors and starting lore that the players have. So it's just the initial things they start with, and I. I, to reinforce the idea that intelligence is more about your education and book learning, um, they have more lore to start out with than someone that has a lower intelligence. But yeah, beyond that, through the campaign, you only get more rumors and lore by actually interacting with NPCs or exploring and discovering things. So yeah, it's just about starting info. Yo, Rob, super enjoyed your random thought Saturday. That was awesome, man. I love hearing people talk about building their worlds and setting up a new campaign and everything. And you had awesome ideas. All your random thoughts were fantastic, man. I hope you do get a chance to do your uh, bucket list idea, you know, of running Divine Right before the campaign. That's kind of like folks that run like Microscope 
or Kingdom, those weird, crazy story, weird games before a campaign. That's something I've always wanted to do too. So, you know, do it, man. Life, you know, life is short. Who knows? I say do it. Um, and yeah, the rumor table and the lore, like based on their, based on their stats is, that's genius, man. That's just a little stroke of genius. Anyway, peace out. And that was Joe from Hindsightless. Thanks for the call, Joe. Glad you enjoyed the show. I agree. Those are the types of podcasts I usually enjoy the most are ones where the person is talking about building a campaign, building an adventure, or talking about an adventure outline, um, and talking about tinkering with house rules. Those are like the, the trifecta for me. Those are the things I'm most interested in. I'm not so interested in hearing like adventure recaps and stuff. Those can be entertaining, especially if someone is a really good storyteller or something and or something crazy happened. But for the most part, I, I kind of zone out when I hear people talking about their characters um, and, <laughs> and adventures. Um, but designing those types of things and the process behind it, I think is really cool. And that's what helps spur my creativity is hearing other people uh, talk about their creative process. So thanks. And yeah, one of these days I will do the divine right, uh, campaign and stuff and, and have that as a background that, that is something I need to do because yeah, as, as I found out much to, uh, much to my, (laughs) the detriment of my soul. Yeah. (laughs) The, Life is too short. It's um, something you gotta take hold of and seize the day, I guess. Right? Uh, next, uh, we'll get back to Rich, and then Joe will close us out with some uh, a little bit of cheese. Hey, Rob, just wanted to add in on uh, players rolling dice for themselves. I think it was your podcast. I don't know. A lot of people have been talking about this lately. And someone said, and I want to say it was Bandit's Keep, but I'm not sure. Someone said they don't roll the dice until it's appropriate. So, like, okay, that's great. You're uh, you're checking the store for traps, and go ahead and roll your disarm traps. And uh, we're not going to worry about it until someone actually tries to open the door. We're not going to worry about your sneak roll until there's a possibility that failure is interesting. And that's kind of, like, my theory behind dice rolls, and I had never thought about it like that in those instances. So what I'm going to do from now on is to wait until that die roll is interesting and make the player roll it at that time. Anyway, have a good day. Hey, Rich. Good to hear from you again. Thanks for calling in. And, yeah, that that is a good way to handle it if you want to have the, the players making all the dice rolls. Have them roll it at the, the point where it would it would become obvious that they were either successful or failed. I, I don't remember who brought that up and whether or not it was on my podcast or Jason's or Daniel's, but I think it was either Jason, Daniel from Bandit's Keep or Eric Salzweedle from the Omega 3D Chicken Coop calling into Jason's show. It was one of those three, maybe a couple of them that have suggested this, but yeah, that's a good way to handle it. I don't know if it would cover all the bases, but it would certainly cover most of them and I think uh, would satisfy those players that really do want to have the control of the dice they want to they want to roll the bones 
Yo, Rob, so I had to call in again to defend my restaurant brethren. I am a almost lifelong restaurant worker, and it was a rare day or an emergency situation when we would resort to pre-shredded cheese. <laughs> like the two places I worked at for the longest, one was an Italian place and one was a pub. At the pub, we'd go through a boatload of Parmesan because we'd put it on our fries and our salads and a bunch of our dishes. So every week or so, we'd get this big wheel of Parmesan come through, and we had this badass two-handled knife that we'd have to uh, cut down the Parmesan, break it down in a smaller bit so we could run it through the food processor. You might know what kind of knife I'm talking about. I'm sure it's it might be a cheese thing. Seems like a cheese thing. And then at the Italian place, you know, we'd get whole block mozzarella. We shred all our own cheese there, slice our own cheese. So, yeah, I don't know the percentages, but I bet a decent percentage of the good restaurants don't use pre-shredded. Anyway, peace. Out. Hey, thanks for laying down the info on uh, restaurant use and cheese. I'm glad that there are some restaurants out there that, that use the real deal, that do all the put in the work, shredding and grating and slicing and stuff. My knowledge is is a little bit secondhand in that, you know, I worked for a food distributor for a long, long, long time, 12 years or so. And uh, about half of our business was retail and half was restaurant. And all my accounts were on, well, not all. I had a couple restaurant accounts, but most of them were retail accounts. And, uh, but I, I took calls from the buyers from restaurants and stuff. And as a, as a trend, the restaurants didn't buy much cheese from us. Uh, they bought a lot of oil and spices and uh, you know vinegars and things like that, uh, but not a whole lot of cheese. So it's I always had the the impression that they were buying their cheese from like mainliner distributors that handle like all the bulk commodity cheeses and shredded cheeses and stuff like that. So yeah, I'm sure there are restaurants out there you know that uh that do the uh all their shredding and grating and, and slicing and stuff but uh i don't know maybe maybe it's a lot more than i know uh than i think and maybe it's just that i'm uh like cooking at home and stuff and i like going out for to restaurants for food that i can't really prepare or that's a real hassle to prepare at my my home for either me or Mary, um, but um, otherwise, like if I'm just gonna have a burger, um, I'd rather just make a burger at home. <laughs> now, French fries—that's a pain in the butt to do at home. So, if I want a burger and fries, then I'll <laughs> then I'll go to the uh, to one of my favorite bars or something that has a, a great burger. Anyway, wouldn't be a show now without something about cheese so thanks for chiming in on that joe and thanks to uh jason and rich and joe um and who am i forgetting and the pink phantom the new caller pink phantom thanks for calling thanks to all you for listening and until i talk to you on saturday with some random thoughts don't go down in a heap time to go ariel goodbye